Welcome to the Coaching Kool-Aid, Time Magazine labeled 2014 the Year of Mindfulness, and coaches everywhere are using it in their work. Today's episode is all about meditation and mindfulness. What are they? How are they used? And why does this matter? To answer these and other burning questions, we've brought in Dr. Alex Norman of Western Sydney University. As usual, we'll start with a bit of history and look at some definitions before exploring the potential dangers of using mindfulness practices. We'll also talk about some more helpful ways that they could be used. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome. Hi. 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 Today we have with us Dr. Alex Norman. Alex is a senior lecturer at the Graduate Research School at Western Sydney University. He's the author of the book Spiritual Tourism, Travel and Religious Practice in Western Society. And Alex has also recently given a talk entitled Manufacturing Mindfulness, in which he suggests that mindfulness and meditation have become somewhat commodified in order to constitute a global industry. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. So mindfulness meditation has been used in various therapeutic settings for decades particularly in regards to enhancing well-being. Mel and I always love to start with a Google search of these things. So <laughs> that's, that's the academic it's way, isn't it? Yeah. Google, some Google Scholar. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this case, no, because <laughs> a regular Google search shows that coaching and mindfulness are virtually synonymous. There are ads for mindfulness coaches who often promote themselves as helping you to focus on what you really want or on what is most important to you right now and even to overcome obstacles to change your life. Now, of course, these are fundamental aspects of coaching, or some of them are, but are they actually tied to the practice of mindfulness? So, Alex, perhaps you can give us some background on mindfulness. Let's start with the basics. Where do the practices of meditation and mindfulness actually come from? So, it's interesting that you phrase it like that meditation and mindfulness because that's one of the things that I'm interested in is the conflation of those two constructs or those two ideas but to kind of get us going I suppose the place where we usually begin when we talk about mindfulness and meditation is in in western context modern western context is buddhism and particularly this kind of idea that mindfulness whatever that is which we'll leave aside for the time being has its roots in a tradition or various traditions around kind of 2,500 years ago, basically coming out of discussions about what is self. Um, So what am I? Who am I? And in the kind of reductive way of trying to get at who I am, this notion of, well, am I my thoughts? Am I my feelings? Am I my body? That kind of stuff. This led a number of practitioners within Buddhist traditions to assert that it was really difficult to find out what that I was and perhaps a bit of a kind of dead end. And so this practice of what we now call mindfulness was a way of trying to get at that thing which that ungraspable thing um, so the the term that's usually associated with mindfulness is a Sanskrit term called smriti um, or a Pali term known as sati. Both of those we can translate into English kind of roughly as memory. But it's, I mean, like any kind of active translation, there's a kind of error there. Mm. And so it's probably best to understand those two terms and in their cultural context and trying to translate them into the cultural context of contemporary Western societies as being a bit of an umbrella or a bit of a range of meanings. And so the range is in the sphere of memory, but it's perhaps also more accurately towards remembering 
rather than memory, or the practice of remembering, or the knowledge of memories. So it kind of swings around like that depending on who you're interested in. And when we look at the history as well, we see that various... Usually the way um, mindfulness groups, in say in Australia at the moment, construe mindfulness is that it has this kind of singular origin 2,500 years ago, fast forward to kind of now. But actually, when we look at the histories, we see that there are lots of competing discourses within Buddhist traditions right back 2,500 years ago and longer about what this thing was. And they each thought the other was full of it. As in, they thought that they, you know, theirs was the, the, the type of mindfulness that was right, and all of the other Buddhist groups were, were just wrong. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so a good way to kind of think of the, the, the origins is practices that lots of Buddhist traditions developed that were about trying to remember, trying to pay attention to and remember self, like mm-hmm. what this I is. Um, and that then kind of doing what I just critiqued, fast-forwarding 2,500 years to kind of the late 1970s. That's what I'm mostly interested in. So I guess I'm interested in the modern history of mindfulness. And when John Kabat-Zinn, an American clinician, developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, what he was interested in was paying attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental way. And he, he kind of has a lot of subtly different definitions but they're all generally in that direction. And that interest that Kabat-Zinn has in paying attention is specifically a clinical one. Yeah, I've actually got John Kabat-Zinn's mm-hmm. definition here that he gives is mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. Mm. And that is the therapeutic, yeah. secular definition. And sometimes he kind of adds like a, a semicolon with a kind of like a coda or something at the yeah, end of it, right, okay. <laughs> which is that it's in the in the service of self improvement or in the service of kind of wellness and betterment of self or understanding of self, and it, it depends a little bit on the context how he kind of defines it. So I'd like to get into definitions in a minute. Before we do, I'd also like to go back to what you were saying before about the conflation of the two. So they really are. I mean, mindfulness and meditation are often used interchangeably, particularly in popular discourse. Is there a difference? And is it an important distinction? Does it matter? <laughs> like a good academic, I'll say yes and no. Um, and importantly, it depends. Yes. It's funny, I was, I, I, I've thought about that question a lot. Um, because in academic discourse, yes, it absolutely matters. Um, depending on the level of precision you're trying to go to in your claims of knowledge about what you're looking at. In popular discourse, maybe it doesn't matter so much, the conflation. But I, I would contend that the conflation occurs because, like, like I signalled earlier, like from the get-go, mindfulness was variously conceived. Like whatever it is, there are competing kind of understandings of what it might be. Um, but I also think that in our current context and in the discourse that occurs about mindfulness, it does depend a little bit on who you ask and what context you are asking them in. So meditation and mindfulness are often collapsed, I think, because mindfulness, maybe with a capital M, mm. to signal like a brand or something like that, usually has a set of practices associated with it or tied to it that involves some kind of contemplative practice, some kind of meditation. So when I say contemplative practice, I'm kind of using, I'm trying to use a higher order term than meditation, which 
uh, has some connotations that nowadays are tied largely to Buddhism and contemplative practice might be the the higher order that other kinds of traditions like Christianities or Islams might have their own contemplative versions of. So mindfulness, with a capital M, often has this, usually it's an attention to the breath is the practice. So you kind of sit quietly and the, the, the kind of novice training is that you pay attention to the feeling of your breath going in and out of your nostrils. That's a contemplative practice because it involves some attention and it involves some kind of somatic uh, regulation. Like you have to sit quietly. You, you, you know, it, one, of the, one of the points of genius of Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness brand is that he kind of got people off the cushion mm-hmm. and could, you could sit in a chair, you could kind of be walking around, you could even be at work or even kind of talking to people like this and be paying attention to the feeling um, of... Um, your breath. That's certainly how it's used a lot more in coaching practice. Mm. It's much more about being aware, so it's almost like a state of reflection. Mm. So that's what's known kind of in the academic literature as informal practice. Mm -hmm. So you can go about things, you kind of go about daily life doing a practice of some kind that is trying to focus uh, attention or bring attention back to the present in a non-judgmental way to kind Mm. of recall those words. Um, then there's the formal practice, which is where you sit down. It's much more kind of somatically regulated. But that's all in the service of trying to achieve this maybe state of mindfulness. And that's a practice. Like there are kind of number of practices there, contemplative practices that you can use to achieve this state. But then there are lots of other types of meditation that are different, mm-hmm. um, that aren't trying to do that, that are maybe trying to cultivate compassion like loving kindness, um, loving kindness meditation. meditation is the is the classic. And then also meditation is still used as reflection. Marcus Aurelius's book Meditations is about reflecting. Right? Yeah. It's about just deep thinking. Yeah, so which is not paying attention non-judgmentally to at the present all. at all. No, yeah. no, it's, it's it's you kind of need to be a little judgmental because you're doing critique. You're reflecting. Yeah, yeah. Doing analysis. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So, to that point, then, do you think it's important that the two are separated? Uh, yeah, like before I said maybe it doesn't matter in popular discourse, and maybe it doesn't. But being a kind of aspiring curmudgeon um, <laughs> and, you know, a pedant and uh, somebody who likes definitions, yes. I actually think, look, like my actual personal opinion is that mm. it does really matter in popular discourse. Yeah. Um, because meditation is a kind of family of things mm. and mindfulness is its own family of things and they probably overlap, but... They aren't the same thing. And to use them interchangeably is problematic. because it creates confusion. It creates confusion, exactly. Yeah. Even for really fluent readers of mindfulness literature, in the academic sense, when you see your colleagues using meditation and mindfulness interchangeably, you think, well, what actually are you referring to here? Mm. What? And then, more problematically in terms of scientific work, what was it that you were measuring, mm. that you thought you were measuring? Measurement can be a big problem, yeah. absolutely, in this regard. But also, can the practice, because when you're, if you are a mindfulness coach, what exactly are you doing with your clients? Absolutely. Mm. If we go to the authoritative definition, being yeah. cabots in for the purposes of yeah. discussing the brand, I mm-hmm. guess, non-judgmental, paying attention in the present, that has nothing to do with strategy or bettering yourself necessarily or having a kind of tea loss. That's what interests me about what you guys are interested in because mm. coaching and mindfulness don't seem in the Kabat-Zinian kind of way to be an obvious match. Mm. So one of the one of the primary reasons that we're starting this podcast apart from to pull apart the Kool-Aid from the research 
is also to highlight the fact that there are aspects of coaching that certainly are not about just simply goal attainment and performance enhancement and a lot of it what is called developmental coaching generally is about perspective taking capacity and helping people particularly in positions of leadership Mm -hmm. to build their perspective taking capacity being able to see other people's opinions and fold those into their own so in that sense a really good model does use mindfulness as a part of helping to build that paying attention to your reactions mm. to mm. other people mm. in that space so in, the, in that sense it can certainly be used effectively mm. development of metacognition i suppose mm. that ability to zoom out on the situation and observe it dispassionately mm. dispassionately uh, here at uni, they've been putting me through a management course. The first kind of two modules, which were about reflection, oh. were terrific. Oh, well, see, there you go. Yeah, because so it was about, you know, the know thyself, you know. That's, I think, that know thyself part is really what the meditation part mm. can only be referred to in coaching. Mm. Coaching is basically a lot of self-reflection. So it's helping people to develop an awareness of their unconscious behaviours and the impact that these are having both on themselves and on others, but then also on the system Mm. as a whole. That's good coaching. Mm. Um, There's a lot of time spent paying attention to what a person is doing, thinking, feeling, experiencing, perceiving. So in that sense, mindfulness practice can be very helpful. Coming back to what you were saying before, something that does come up in the literature a lot is the phrase mindfulness meditation, Mm. Um, and particularly in coaching and psychology literature. That's probably a good separation. You know, I love words. Um, (laughs) If you take the kind of semantics seriously, it's Mm. saying that there are things that are called meditation and we are talking about the variant, mindfulness. Yes. So mindfulness meditation makes sense to me. But then, even then, like you have to think, well, whose mindfulness are you talking about here? Like as in whose school of mindfulness? What kinds of practices are you teaching people in this? And do you think that that's important from a practitioner's sense? Do you feel as though if someone is going to present themselves as a mindfulness coach or a mindfulness trainer, that they need to be very specific about exactly what they're doing? I, I suppose they probably need to be upfront about what the content of their training is and what the intended outcomes for participants are that relate to that content. And this is one of the things that interests me about the mindfulness industry is that that's usually treated with gloss. That is that it's, to use a sociological term, it's McDonaldized. Every mindfulness training program looks the same mm-hmm. if, when you look at its kind of website or its paperwork. But we know that's not what's happening. We know that there are differences in the way people teach mindfulness. There are differences in the way individual trainers influence um, the people that they train. Like you, I mean, teaching is the great analogy. You think like there's that one teacher in high school who really made a difference. Like, isn't that amazing that that one person, same content, same tradition, but just that it was a personality issue that made a big difference. Mm. And and that probably has profound impacts on like what people are able to take away from it. And it's not just the personality of the trainer, then it's also the match of the personality of the trainer and the trainee. Mm. And none of this is really talked about as, as much as I think it should be talked about in the mindfulness industry. Mm. That's true. Are you familiar with Ellen Langer's approach to, to mindfulness? No. So she's sort of noted as being as having a, almost a more cognitive approach to it. So whereas Kabat-Zinn's approach is that passive letting mm. that moment by moment happen. 
Ellen Langer goes a couple of steps further. So it's it's five factors. She's got an orientation to the present, so that's similar to Kabat-Zinn, sensitivity to the context, an openness to experience, that's all very similar. But then the fourth and fifth stages are an adoption of multiple perspectives. Mm. So that would suggest a more active approach. And then the drawing of novel distinctions. It's Her, a perceptive, yeah. relates perception there. Yeah. I wonder if that relates... There's a scale called the five-factor mindfulness scale. Mm-hmm. I think it I does. I think it does. Yes. Yeah. This is this is the other really interesting thing. Like, so if we if we then turn just for a second to think about what like what are we talking about in in this like mm-hmm. mindfulness? We're using this even we now being trying to be critical. We're using this term uncritically. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about a moment-to-moment state of mind, as in how focused our attention is on something, or or are we or are we talking about how non-judgmental we are in the present moment? And that's just moment to moment. Or are we talking about a general kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month trait about how mindful a person is? Are we talking about a practice, which is something, again, different, like, you know, I might have a certain trait of mindfulness or a particular state at any given point in time, but then I might also do a practice that is some kind of intervention, ideally on both of those things. Mm -hmm. Most of the scales that have been developed in psychology are measuring trait and there's been some really fascinating research in one um i think it was published in 2005 binge drinkers had a better mindfulness outcome on the scale than mindfulness practitioners um which is a fascinating result because what it points to most problematically is the scale is wrong the measurement is wrong so the instrument as it's known in psychological discourse Mm. isn't measuring what you think and this is why i think it's really important to pay attention to terms Mm. and context and teachings and all the rest because then it can help you understand what like what actually are we trying to measure ultimately the irony of all of this of course is when this research trickles down into the much broader uh, world of practice. Very few people who practice this and make money out of it are doing a lot of contemplation on what these terms actually mean. Mm. They might be reading some research, Mm. but often they'll get to the end of the research and will say, well, mindfulness is correlated with you know, these fantastic factors, increased well-being, emotional regulation, without even thinking about what was the measurement. Most practitioners, I hate to say it, aren't actually thinking about that stuff. And that's a scientific literacy problem, like Mm -hmm. a fundamental problem with how we teach Mm -hmm. people in our society to understand scientific claims. Mm -hmm. Like they're so contingent and so subjective, necessarily so, like that's what makes them good. The fundamental premise of scientific research is that uh, we can only exhaust kind of false findings. We can't find out if something's true. A lot of people don't understand that. And then you add the, the, the issue that you just mentioned, Renee, which is measurement. What was it actually that was being measured? Mm. Yeah. And yeah, what we do as humans is we tend to kind of read the result that most aligns with our belief, mm-hmm. the belief we already have. And we'll mm-hmm. kind of, you know, cherry picking is an unkind way of talking about it, but it's just something that humans have evolved to do really well just pick the stuff that works for us. Oh, I absolutely. It, mindfulness research has been cherry-picked to death. You know, this list of improved memory, motivation, creativity, improves work-related metrics such as job satisfaction, emotional awareness, social capital and workplace learning. Uh, social capital. Reported links between mindfulness and improved workplace problem identification and coping skills, depression prevention, improved personal effectiveness, Mental resilience, psychosocial functioning in the workplace, think more clearly, feel calmer, more empowered, and empathetic. So, so you I read think, all of that list yeah. as a 
as a coach and say, right, done. Yeah, Sign me up. Nothing, this, nothing yeah. negative there at all. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. So, so I think that's a really perfect segue into looking at the critiques of mindfulness. The first one I think we've talked about quite a bit now, and that's the simplification and the commodification of these practices. The term MOOC mindfulness mm. is thrown around in the academic literature quite a lot. Are there any potential effects of removing these practices from the historical or cultural context and placing them as a single product in the market that we haven't covered? Yes. On the one hand, we have this problem, which is a physical and uh, mental practice, which evolved in a particular socio-cultural context, has now been appropriated, or, or, or practices therefrom have been appropriated into quite a different socio politico-geographical, chronological context, right? And all of the cultural uh, mechanisms that existed in, let's just for problematically call it Buddhist contexts, um, to look after people, to determine whether they were right to do uh, these contemplative practices or not, to have a, a particular uh, social and political infrastructure in place to enable them to do it, all of that has been left behind and we've just kind of gotten a little claw and gotten just the, the practice and the mental stuff and kind of drawn it out of there and plopped it into the contemporary Western society. I don't think that necessarily causes problems, but I think that we know enough about the way humans do living, but that is that culture is really important and cultural contexts and the, the structures that culture produces to enable people to be well or not be well are really important. That's pretty well established. And so when you do that kind of thing, when you, when you lift something out of a cultural context and put it into another, you run the risk of harming people. And there's been some work, so Willoughby Britain at Brown University, I think it's Brown, and uh, Jared Lindahl, also at Brown, um, have been doing some work on negative effects from uh, meditate contemplative practices. They, I don't think they've published much yet, but I know they've been gathering data for a long time. There was also a, an MA thesis recently completed at Sydney University's Religious Studies Department that looked at negative effects as well. Just a bit of a kind of review of literature of, of an, an argument about why the negative effects haven't been talked about. So like, I think that's a, that's a big problem for us in talking about mindfulness is that it, it's a thing, what, you know, these practices, is sitting down and paying attention and non-judgmentally, kind of was conceived in a particular socio-cultural context and now has been appropriated, lifted out and put into another one. It can harm people. Like, there's no question about that. See, that's the, I mean, that's the question. So we look at it, generally people look at it in the well-being industry as like eating goji berries or, you yeah. know, just something that's incredibly it's harmless unquestionably, and fluffy. It, well, yeah, maybe not harmless and fluffy, but unquestionably positive. Unquestionably mm. positive, sure. Yeah. Well, I think people do see it as soft, too. I think a lot of people think, like... You know, I'm just going to get up and, and have I'll my muesli and do some yoga. And yeah, okay, I'll take that. Yeah. In actual fact, I, I've more come across mindfulness as being talked about within the coaching sphere as how do we sell this? Like mm. this is actually a hard sell. Mm. And so it's lists like that that help the health benefit the coach list. to yeah, sell right. it yeah. to a client as something that's worth exploring Yeah, because it is seen as a bit new age oh, or sure. so from um, fluffy and that kind of thing. Yeah yeah, 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 crystal coaching kind of stuff. That's right. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to go to that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
my uh, information on this is purely anecdotal in the sense that I know two people personally who have been to mindfulness meditation retreats and have had fairly serious... Um, one had a psychotic episode, the other one had a very deep um, depressive episode brought on by that. Oh yeah, like anyone who's who's been in this industry, the contemplative science industry, mm-hmm. even for, a, for a, the briefest amount of time, will come across negative outcomes. Mm. I mean, the kinds of negative outcomes that occur are like dissociative disorders, relationship problems. Mm. Sometimes there are weird perception problems, like kind of synesthesia. Tinnitus is a really big one, because suddenly if you're focusing um, on the sounds, Mm -hmm. you may realise that you've got this ringing that, you know, actually becomes exacerbated because you're aware of it. Yeah, so there's a a correlate of this in my doctoral research, which was, I did some field work on the Camino de Santiago, which is a Catholic pilgrimage through France and Spain. And there's this particular section in Spain called the Meseta, where people, it's a, like a desert. It's, there are no town, hardly any towns, there's no kind of landscapes, just flat, you know, quote-unquote boring landscape. And that section is renowned for either kind of, uh, you know, driving people a little bit crazy, or they stop and they catch a bus to kind of, you know, st- to avoid it. And my contention is that the, the, the mechanism there is quite... We, we create a world for ourselves that is distraction. Like, we are profoundly afraid of ourselves as individuals um, and communities in, in, in Western societies, at least. Which is never more clear than when you get the train in the morning and it is just a sea of iPhones yeah. and people literally playing whatever or looking at whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can talk about mindlessness, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Exactly. And, you know, good or bad, like, let's leave that aside. Yep, that now. is what it is. It is what it is. And the antithesis to that is essentially mindfulness practices fit into the antithesis of that. Mm-hmm. Quiet, attention, non-judgment. Even in the best of circumstances, that for most people is profoundly disturbing because mm. uh, it's not normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the normal state of affairs. Particularly now. And particularly now, yeah, exactly. Where day, like daydreaming and boredom are uncommon yes. now, yes. which is a real problem. I quote, unquote, torture my kids by getting them to be bored. Bored, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's the greatest gift it's to such, give your kids. Yeah, because it, it, it forces creativity and right. self-awareness as well. Um, See, now in this context, practicing mindfulness could actually be incredibly beneficial yeah. in, in the social context we've just been talking about, and yet also needs to be held incredibly carefully because if you're taking minds that do not even practice boredom, let alone mindfulness, mm. that they're constantly distracted and then say, okay, now we're going to just spend 10 minutes focusing on your thoughts. Mm. Yeah, and what happens if you ruminate for those 10 minutes? That's right, which you um, certainly could do. You could do, exactly. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever really... I have spoken to clients about mindfulness before, absolutely. And I don't think I'd ever really realised that it could have negative effects. I think I always thought, how can it be bad? But in actual fact, I have had a client who has said words to the effect of I was scared of my thoughts mm. when he spent time doing that and then that the silence on, on the Camino that you were just talking about I just recently did a hike in Tasmania mm. and there was this one little section that we were going to walk through and our guides suggested to us that we could walk through this section in a single file and not speak and there was nine of us 
and typically we'd all been you know chatting along the way and that kind of thing moments of silence but you know in and out of conversation quite naturally anyway she said she said would you like to all do this and we all said yeah that'd be great I loved it I got to the end and thought what a gift but when we got to the end and we all reflected on it eight people out of nine said that was fantastic one woman said I absolutely hated it I, I hated every moment of it please let's not do that again and we were all really fascinated by that mm. because she was probably the most quiet person on the walk as well. Mm. But it was as if she, and she, I think she reflected on this too, that I like the noise of people talking. I don't do a lot of talking myself, but I like the, the, the distraction, I suppose. Because yeah. otherwise the internal thoughts are amplified. That, so yeah. And that's, I'm sure that's, that's a big part of it for a lot of people. And it's not necessarily bad to have scary thoughts up. I mean, that can be a part of a she, good self-reflection. Exactly. She saw it as a bad thing. It's got to be scaffolded, really. It's well. got to be scaffolded. Really good at, mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, have some kind. Of, it's you know, you can't you can't get somebody off the street putting up a signed psychologist and saying, well, now come and talk to me about your stuff, you know. And I think that these practices can be as powerful, if not more so, than a, an appointment with a psychologist in terms of things coming up for you. So, and more. I think that's where it's it's. A little bit scary, perhaps, that this is being doled out in a, in a coaching session as something that you should be doing, mm-hmm. being like, more mindful, like um, a like a gratitude journal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When actually it, it could have um, yeah, negative implications. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, for me, you know, having spent time in a lab and you know that studied this stuff for a couple of years, one of the lessons there for me is that there clearly are positives for a lot of people out of these kinds of practices in the right conditions. Um, There are clearly negative outcomes for some people in the wrong kinds of conditions. And that one of the factors that has been overlooked and that must be pursued, I would argue, as a matter of urgency, is the role of community and mentorship and the the kind of longitudinal effects of this. Because mindfulness in particular, you know, I, I flagged at the beginning that it was clinical, and the reason for that is that it's prescribed. And that has all sorts of normative dimensions that get kind of freighted with a prescription because it must be good if it's a prescription. <laughs> uh, and the problem is, my intuition is that it doesn't have the kind of positive effects that it could have as a prescription. It has probably positive effects when it's more like a way of life or part of your way of life. Um, that is, it's a part of your, the fabric, the kind of social and cultural fabric with which you do living. Uh, sorry, another big criticism is that mindfulness and meditation can be used to support unethical systems. So that several critics of mindfulness training in corporate spaces feel that it ultimately works to reduce stress, allowing workers to be pushed even further beyond their limits. And they point to companies like Google and Target, both of which have arguably instigated mindfulness training programs without providing better conditions for their workers, mm-hmm. as evidenced by the uh, massive protests by the Google workers late last year. Google's an interesting one because they established the Wisdom 2.0 conferences or 2.0 conferences to promote mindfulness and meditation and then with all of that. And had an official position. Jade Meng Tang was, um, Mm -hmm. well his unofficial title was Jolly Good Fellow but um, he was, (laughs) yeah that's how how he was referred to Mm. within the company but I think like head of mindfulness or something like that or chief mindfulness officer, I can't remember what it is. The conclusion is that if coaches or mindfulness trainers operating in the corporate 
corporate space are not taking into account the reality of the conditions that are being imposed, the external stresses, that is, um, and are simply helping with stress reduction. And this can be seen as highly unethical practice. What are your thoughts on that? Just, yeah, obviously. (laughs) 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 Sure. This is the other part of the critique of the discourse that I'm interested in is the extent to which mindfulness becomes part of and not even becomes part seems so obviously and unquestionably positive and beneficial because what it does is enable economic prosperity Mm -hmm. so insofar as it is economically useful mindfulness is a tool a mechanism of neoliberal understandings of what an individual is what a worker is and what well and unwell are well and unwell are basically economically useful or economically not useful and i mean you're right to point out that mindfulness in corporate settings is often rolled out as a curative and you must like i like i think this is where the work of sociologists in particular is vital and i you know i wish more sociologists would participate publicly says he who doesn't participate publicly yeah there you go um that if your workers are so unwell that they require this positive intervention it doesn't matter what it is but if as a group you have workers who are unwell you must ask the question is it the conditions that you are creating for your workers Mm -hmm. that is called that's causing them to be unwell and that question is very rarely asked. Mm. And to propose a, a salve, a balm of some kind, is unethical. unethical. Mm. Yeah. It places the responsibility solely on the worker yes. themselves to manage their own stress and actually to be thankful that you work in an organisation that offers you that's this right. mindfulness and workshop that's, or that's this That's why I would program. construe it as abusive. Like that is the that's what an abuser does. Mm. They make yes. you unwell and then give you the cure, and that's awful. It's known that that this is the case, but what do we do about it? Is mm. the kind of question. And I think the I think critique is is one of the primary mechanisms we have mm. there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've we've certainly spoken to a lot of people working in the coaching space who are, I guess, particularly academics like Michael Kavanagh and David Drake, who see coaches as having a moral moral imperative to bring reflection to people who can make a change. You know? How are you contributing? If you, that's right, how are you contributing to these things? Yeah. So there's a fellow, I don't know if you've heard of him, called Otto Sharma. Mm. Maybe he's from MIT. And he does a lot of work on dialogue, ethical leadership forms, things like that. He's an interesting character. I think, because again, one of the major criticisms of mindfulness being used in the corporate space is that mindfulness can't save the world. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a silver bullet, yeah. But I mean, I guess what they're trying to point to is that within the Buddhist tradition, um, the point of meditation and mindfulness, or one of the points is to end collective human suffering, and that there is that you could call it a teleological goal or whatever, but there is mm. that sense of moving towards the betterment of humanity mm. um, and that that's not going to happen in the corporate space. But Otto Sharma basically says, no, no, we can. It can save the world. So he wrote a blog called Collective Mindfulness in which he basically posits that mindfulness can save the world. In other words, the way to move from self or ego-centered systems to ones which are eco-centered, by which he means connected to a broader system, not just focusing on the self, but on others and the environment. He says, So what will it take to wake up from our collective sleepwalking? It will require applying the power of mindfulness 
both individually and collectively, to the evolution of business, democracy and society. What would the path towards an intentional co-creative ecosystem economy look like? It would take us on a journey that links together three intertwined parallel transformations – personal, relational, and institutional. All three of these transformations must deal with essentially the same inner movement, shifting the state of awareness from ego to eco by awakening the the intelligence of our heart. He then goes on to say that he and his colleagues have discovered very reliable ways to do this through their research, but he doesn't give any practical ways of doing it. And it'll only cost you. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. But it's an interesting perspective from someone in the business realm to say, no, 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 really mindfulness can save us. And it's not just on that executive you go into yourself and pay attention to what's going on with you he is mm. saying we need to look at broader systems pretty really utopian well that's like you said like that's it is utopian mm-hmm. um, but like i said like that's in the buddhist contexts and in a context where in other contexts where a mindfulness practice a mindfulness meditation practice for example um, or ideals about mindfulness might be situated in a way of life that has some communal teleological kind of aspirations. Sure. 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 Bring it in. Weave yeah. it in. Being being more reflective and aware of yourself and the effect that you have on others, that's a wonderful thing. Of course it is. Mm. But can capital M, mindfulness, save the world? Probably not. Um, and, and that comes back for me again to the one of the most important questions that is ignored thus far, which is like what effect have mindfulness interventions on communities? As far as I understand, mm. it's never been studied in the sense of if we give X number of people from this community our, our eight-day mindfulness-based stress reduction intervention, how does the community benefit? Systems. Mm. It's all about systems. I would love to keep talking more about this, yeah. but I think we've taken up too much of your time already. I'd love to keep talking more. <laughs> Thank you so much, thanks. Dr. Alex Norman. No, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's, it's so lovely to be able to talk and talk something that you've been thinking about. Excellent. Mm. We will see you next time on The Coaching Kool-Aid.